You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, Donna and I celebrated our 17-year anniversary this week, folks. Yeah. Can you believe it? How crazy is that? Uh, What were you doing 17 years ago? Uh, I think some of our band was just learning their own names, you know, learning how to use their fingers. And uh, pretty crazy. And I got to tell you something. Somebody asked me the other day, what's it like being married 17 years? And what I told them was... uh, I don't even consciously ask the question anymore, how will this decision affect Donna? I said, that's the first thing that came to mind. Our our lives are so intertwined that every thought I have has her as a part of it. Because there's no area of my life that goes untouched by this intimate communion with her. Every thought, every decision, every allegiance is run through the filter of my union with Donna. And I mention that to you here to celebrate, but also to point out that that is, in in a small way, a picture of the Christian's union with Jesus Christ. To a much greater degree, that's what it's like to be related to him. This book of Colossians has said, we are the body and he is the head. We are knit together with him as close as a neck is to a head. We've been vitally united with him, and that has implications for everything. There's not a part of us that's withheld from him. Every decision, every allegiance, every room we move into and place we sit has been intimately connected to him. He is a part of every sphere of our life, all that we do completely informed by this allegiance. And so that's what we've been talking about in this series of live. Again, what does it look like to live in that union with Jesus Christ? And we've just been looking at the implications of that association in different areas of our life. And we looked at it in the Christian's inner life. How does my union with Christ impact my thought life? What what my mind entertains, what I believe, and what forms my convictions? And we looked at we're meant to set our mind on things above, that our thoughts are shaped by thoughts of him. Then we looked at the Christian in the community of faith. For the other people who have a similar allegiance to Jesus, how do we interact with each other? Even if we may be at various starting points in life, how do we now connect to each other because of our united connection with him? And we looked at our key idea is that we have compassion for one another. Then we looked at the Christian in the home. I gave that to Brett uh, to talk about. Man, how do we look at the responsiveness and sacrificial nature of a husband and wife as they unite with each other? Uh, next week, we'll look at the Christian and the culture. How do you act on the streets? But today is about work. How does your allegiance to Jesus Christ impact how you enter the workplace? How does it inform how you treat your boss? What does what we do with this text have to do with what you do out there? Uh, I held many jobs as a young man. One of them, I remember in college, uh, was I was a pool chef, uh, which you're like, what is that? 
they made it up. Uh, I would wheel out these grills uh, next to this pool at a country club. One grill had a bunch of uh, charcoal-covered fire uh, wood on the front of it. The other was a flat grill made by a guy who works on airplanes. Uh, and so there was no knobs for the heat. Anytime I poured oil on it, it burst into flames. And so I sat between two huge fires grilling for children at a country club, making it up as I go. And the question I was asking myself as a 20-year-old was, what does my allegiance with Christ have anything to do with all these hot dogs I'm making with these kids? How does my allegiance to Christ impact the way I handle this job? How does it work with your political career? How does it work with your ambitions and hopes and dreams for your future? How does your faith impact the workplace? Now, as soon as I say that, I want you to notice in the text, it used the language bondservant and master, which that language is problematic. But we covered that last week, so I'm not really going to belabor it here. The short story was to be a bondservant or a slave in Rome was quite different than 18th and 19th century slavery. It wasn't race-based. They functioned at all levels of society, including higher-level governmental positions. And except in the cases of prisoners of war or condemned criminals, bond servitude was a temporary process, not a fixed status. And so many voluntarily entered it because it provided security of food and shelter and medical care, or it provided the ability to elevate yourself in Roman society. For many, it was the fastest path to Roman citizenship. But with that said, it could be a brutal process. And so the New Testament we looked at last week undermined this way of working at every level laying the foundational work philosophically for abolition, particularly with the forced labor we think of as slavery in the 18th and 19th century. The Bible strongly condemned it, and Christians throughout history did as well, and it was the seedbed of abolition. Indeed, you don't get an abolitionist movement in history outside of the arrival of Christianity. And yet, it persisted in the 18th and 19th century, the transatlantic slave trade. How? How did Christians perpetrate it? Well, because we talked about it last week, some of them just ripped the texts out of their Bible that condemned kidnapping and slavery. You can go to the Slave Bible, the Museum of the Bible. They tore those pages out. Or they preyed on people's ignorance of what Scripture teaches, or they took advantage of people's indifference about having compassion for others. And yet in the Bible, in the New Testament, we looked at every, this form of slavery, even this milder form, if you call it that, in Rome. Kidnapping was condemned. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul told people, don't voluntarily become a bondservant anymore. And if you can get out, get out. So all through the New Testament, you see an undermining of the system as it works today. And so we talked about that at length last week. So that's all I'll say about it this week. But let me just say this. As you look at this text, it talks a lot more to the person in the bondservant position than it does to the master position. Why is that? Well, the main reason is because Christianity was at its outset, it did have people in higher positions of power that joined the Christian movement, but it was primarily a movement of the powerless Some of the slanderers of Christianity in the earliest centuries said, ah, it's a religion for slaves and women because it took people that were disenfranchised in society and said, you have dignity in the image of God and God has purpose for your life and there's a beauty to you and God wants to use you in powerful ways. So it attracted those who lacked power because Christianity, you had a powerful God become a servant to us that we might be elevated in the image of God. That's our message. And so it was attractive philosophy, not primarily to the powerful, but to the powerless. It ascribed dignity to all human beings. So for us, we'll talk a little bit about those who are bosses. The text gives you one verse, but it's primarily for those of us who are having to rise and grind. 
How do you work? And we're gonna talk about it in this work context. And interestingly, if you look in the Bible, the way they group some of it, they put it in what's commonly called the household codes, right next to wives and husbands and kids. Why? Because if you were a bondservant, often you worked in the home. People's work life and home life were very intimately intertwined. So if you worked for a boss, it was in the midst of their house. It was the person you spent the most time with, which if you cast your mind back uh, to pre-COVID, your coworkers are, are the people that if you count up the hours, you spend the most time with. 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, you're hanging out with these people. How are you meant to conduct those relationships? How do we handle the people we work alongside and the people we work for? And so this passage will talk about how we're supposed to work. And it really gives two commands to the worker, one with an orientation towards how you treat your boss and one with an orientation towards how you treat the actual work of what you do. So we'll look at it towards your employer in verse 22. It says, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That word obey in the original Greek means obey, but it's kind of an interesting word. It's the combination of two words, listen and under. That I'm listening to you and coming under your authority. That's the idea of the word obey. When I think of it, I think of the word attentive because attentiveness carries that idea. Uh, I think of being a waiter. I also waited tables in college to put myself through it. And as a waiter, you're attentive to people's words. What is it that you want? What do you feel like eating today? I'm listening to you. But I'm not just attentive to your words. I'm also attentive to your desires. I am serving you. Oh, did you drop your fork? Let me get another one. Oh, did you want to refill? Let me get that for you. And as a waiter, I made it my goal to serve people in a way that they never had to ask for anything that I was so attentive to their needs, so in tune with what they desired that I could serve them away, that that would release them to have the conversation they wanted to have and they never had to worry about, where's our napkin? Where's our waiter? Where's the check? We gotta go. That I wanted them to never have the stress of managing the moment I wanted to do it. I was attentive to their words and attentive to their needs. And that's the idea here, that I'm listening and I'm coming underneath you to serve you. And you notice it says to do that in everything. There's not taken into account if you have a good boss or a bad boss. I remember my first job out of college, I was a youth pastor and I had a boss that was a great teacher of like leadership philosophy and was really trying to set me up to win as I was growing in ministry. And and so I remember the first time I went to a church conference, uh, we went there and they had all these seminars and I'm like, I don't know what seminar to take. What seminar is there for a kid with a youth ministry of three people? Uh, But I looked, there was one seminar about how to work with your boss. And I remember thinking, My boss is awesome. He's always setting me up to win. I've never thought about how to serve him. Uh, I'm gonna go and maybe learn something. So I showed up there and I thought, wow, look at this collection of us all looking at how to be better servants of our boss. And I sat down among these youth pastors and the guy got up front and was like, hey, before I begin, does anyone have any questions? And someone stood up in the middle and like, how do you work for a pastor that's a mother and starts cussing at a church conference? And I was like, whoa, whoa this dude is really out of step. And then someone else was like, yeah, because my boss is a son. And then I was like, whoa, whoa. And suddenly I realized I was in a room with a lot of bitterness, a lot of resentment. And I'm like, wow. I thought we all came in here to serve together and how to love our bosses. You people hate the person you work for. And yet 
Me and them, we're both given the same command, obey in everything. It doesn't take into account your boss's IQ or their EQ. Your boss may not be as smart as you and may not be as sensitive as you'd like him to be. And yet, we're told here, we're meant to serve them in everything. And yet, Paul puts a qualifier on it. Obey your earthly masters. That's an important note for Paul. Why call them earthly? Of course they live on earth. What he's saying there is, you have an ultimate master in heaven, God. And that authority trumps any human authority. So you obey your boss to the degree that you can and maintain moral integrity. You saw Peter do that uh, when he worked on, in Jerusalem. The religious authorities of those days said, stop talking about Christ. And he said, respectfully, no, I'm going to do that. And so there is a place where you say no to authorities. I had a friend out of college uh, get a job and his boss said, hey, you need to wine and dine our clients. They want to go to strip clubs. You're going to a strip club. And he said, man, I can't do that. And they said, you think you're better than us? You get over to that strip club now and you start buying drinks. And he said, I can't do it. So my buddy with his college degree threw boxes for UPS rather than violate his integrity, walked away from his career path. And so there is a place where you say, no, I have a heavenly authority that trumps earthly authority. There's places where you say no. And yet in this passage, it's telling you the disposition of a worker is to come in and say, I want to be attentive to the needs, desires, goals of my boss, and I want to work hard. And then notice how he tells us to work, not as I, not in by way of eye service. Now that's a word that Paul probably made up that occurs nowhere else. What does eye service mean? It means don't just work hard while they're watching. And he says, as people pleasers, you're like, where did that term came from? It came from your Bible, right? What does a people pleaser mean? It means I'm just trying to get your attention to get you to like me, right? So he says, when you go about your work, don't work only when they're watching to get their attention, right? Uh, and, and that can be in a minimalist kind of way, like the only time I work is when the boss shows up and suddenly like I got to act like I'm doing something. Or it can be an ambitious way of I'm always doing my work to try to angle so the boss sees what a hard worker I am and I let him know, hey, just want to let you know I worked on Saturday again because I believe in the vision of this place, right? And someone that's just kind of kissing up to try to elevate yourself. He says, we don't do those things. Rather, we serve from a sincerity of heart. That word sincerity means a singleness, not duplicity. There's a purity to our motive in the work. Why do we work that way? Because we fear the Lord. We fear the Lord. Why would someone work, go about their duties in a way that you're trying to get noticed by your boss so they'll like you? Why do we do that? Well, it can be out of anxiety. Man, I need to make sure they know that I'm doing a good job or else I'll get fired or else I won't attain the levels I need to attain. So I gotta get, make sure they notice me. Or out of ambition. Hey, I'm here and I don't care about y'all. I'm just trying to elevate me. So I'm doing this job, but I hate this job. I'm just doing this. So that person notices me to get me to that level, to that level, to that level. It's either anxiety or ambition. Now, I know that's hard to imagine. People going about their work for anxiety and ambition as a motivation. Just take it by faith. Centuries ago, that was an issue. No, that's, I would say, defines our city, right? Some of you are like, well, then what is my motive to work? if not out of anxiety about not reaching my level that I want to get to and ambition to conquer. Why would I not do this? What's our motivation in the text from working out of a sincerity, a purity of just doing the work for the beauty of the work? Why would I do that? Well, here's the idea that the passage is going to tell you. It says, uh, fearing the Lord. That if you're trying to manipulate your boss, it's because you don't fear the Lord. 
If you feared the Lord, then you would believe the Lord guides my story, not my employer. But if you don't believe the Lord guides your story, then what happens? If he's not in control, I got to grab control. And so suddenly this person could make or break me. Suddenly their attention is the difference between me being somebody and being a nobody. And so it fills your life with anxiety and ambition. Man, I got to run, run, run to do this thing. And it's not even about the thing anymore. It's about getting attention. Why do you work like this? You work out of this kind of fear because of misplaced fear. It's a lack of faith. I don't believe the Lord runs my story. So I got to run my story. And Paul says, we don't act that way. What do we do instead? He says in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. That word heartily, it's uh, exuke, from the soul. We're soul workers. We do something good out out of the inside of us, wanting to do what's been put in front of us by God. Now, there's some philosophy underneath that. Why would we do that? If you want the guiding principles here, he's saying, I work out of a purity that I'm doing the work because work is good. And an industry, I'm gonna work hard from the soul. I'm gonna mean it from the depths of me. I'm gonna go about this work in a meaningful way. Why do I work that way? Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. What's the philosophy underneath this work ethic of purity of motivation and industry of action? What's our drive behind this? He says, because I fear the Lord and I'm serving the Lord and not men. We do that because it honors God. Because God loves work. You see it in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 presents God as a craftsman. That God is laying the foundations of the earth and slowly building it and giving it structure. And like a good foreman, at the end of every day, he inspects the work. It says, ooh, that foundation's good. Ooh, these girders are good. Oh, the way I'm fashioning the world is good. You see God caring for what he makes. He says, this is well done. This is well designed. I like this. Well made. And then he creates the man and woman and he gives them the command, you cultivate. You're not gonna produce out of nothing like me, but take the raw materials I gave you and bring your skills and your strengths to bear upon it. And as you build your skills and your strength, bring it upon this, organize the world in such a way that living things are allowed to flourish. He says, I want you to do that. This is pre-fall. This is work is not a product of our rebellion against God. Before rebellion, God is giving them work to do. Hey, take the raw material I gave you and take the skill that I put inside of you and the strength that I've given you, bring to bear on these raw materials to create an environment where others can benefit from your work. They can benefit from the crops you grow and the buildings you build and the education you provide. Use your skills in a way that elevates the community because it glorifies God and it's for the good of the people. You use your abilities. That's what we're meant to do. That's how we're meant to approach work. But then Genesis 3, we rebel against God and things break. And he says, and work will be frustrating. And by the sweat of your nose, you'll eat breath, bread. Suddenly, our, our work life was subject to frustration. It will be difficult. Your will will be thwarted. Things will work against you. They won't respond to your email. There'll be stresses and frustrations and exhaustions and setbacks. It's now hardwired into work. It doesn't make work evil, but it often makes it discouraging and frustrating. And yet it's interesting when Paul addresses the subject of work in this passage, he doesn't talk about the physical frustrations. Things break, you set them up, they fall down. He doesn't do that. Paul gets here and he says, hey, you're meant to work with a purity and a sincerity, a purity of motive and out of the soul. I'm going to work hard to do something good. There's a purity and sincerity. So that's been tainted by anxiety and ambition. The thorn in your work 
for many of us are not external thorns and thistles. It's that internal attempt to use your work in an unhealthy way. The anxiety that I won't be provided for. I won't get noticed. I won't get elevated. The ambition, rather than enjoying the thing, I'm trying to use it to elevate me to greater and greater positions. Why do we do that? Because we don't trust that God guides our story. We don't see him as a factor in the equation. And yet Paul here is calling us to something better than that. He says, no, I want you to do work because God made you to work and he made you to build beautiful things. He made you to take your skills and strength and bring them to bear on the world to create something good in the world. That's what I want you to do. And and what happens to you as a result of that? That's my job. Trust me. That's what Paul goes on to say. Knowing from the Lord, you'll receive an inheritance as a reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. He says, I've got you. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There's no partiality. God's saying, hey, you're bringing all this anxiety to work. And let me tell you something. It's stealing the joy of work. Some of you know the good feeling that comes from trying to build something and building it. I remember for me in high school, I went to live with my dad one summer and he was like, I want you to build a fence. And I'm like, build a what? No, I'm a book reader. I don't build things. And yet here was a fenceless yard for the summer. So I had to go to this hardware store and learn about wood and learn about a fence and learn how to do it. And I went out there and got a post hole digger and I would dig post holes over time and just keep doing it and keep going and keep going and suddenly lay it and pour some concrete in there and get it wrong. And someone would have to come and help me do it and figure it out. And over time I would go study fences. I'd be driving along his town and be like, ooh, there's a nice tense fence and stop the car and just stare at it. People are like, you okay, son? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just admiring the way those fence posts are all so even. How does one do that? And over the course of what would have probably taken a skilled labor a week or so, uh, for me, about a month or two, I built a fence and had that enormous sense of satisfaction of, look at that fence. I've never been so excited in all my life. I'm like, gaze at this fence. I'm inviting people over. Hey guys, we're having a fence party. What? We're just looking to look at this fence. All right, there's a deep satisfaction in a job well done. And God says, I want you to experience that. Why? Because he's a good God. He says, I put skills in you and gave some strength to you. I want you to do it and not be so worried about, did someone notice me? Did they notice me? So many of us, we bring all this anxiety, ambition to work because we're trying to elevate ourselves, but we don't even know what we want. We're like a dog chasing a car. You wouldn't know what to do when you got it. And so many people want positions of authority, but they don't know where they want to lead anybody. Many of us want to grab a mic, but we got nothing to say. We want to get attention on Instagram. And then when we get it, we're like, um, look at me. You're like, stop, stop, stop. Go sit under a tree for a bit. Think about the God who made you and how he made you and how that gifting is meant to be a blessing to the world. Don't be so scared. I won't get enough followers, won't get enough money, won't get enough elevated, won't get it. You, you've stolen all the joy out of work and you're falling victim to what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. He said, it's common for every human being to see there's the inner ring of those who are on the inside. And all of us will feel the sense of I'm on the outside and got to get in. And he said, that's the natural human inclination. And if you do that, it'll ruin your life. You're constantly trying to manipulate, move, and jerk to get the right person to notice me, to invite me in, that I get in the club, that I get past the rope, that I get into that space. And he said, if you do that, it will tyrannize your life and steal all the joy from work. He says, so the trick is, to trust God. And the more you care about the sovereignty of God and see that he runs my story, the more free you are to just serve in your work. And he said, here's the crazy thing. When you do that, when you just care about doing the thing that you're made to do, I'm not going to worry about, do all the other musicians notice me? I'm just going to enjoy music. 
I'm not gonna worry about how many people are following me as I teach. I'm just gonna keep studying the Bible. I'm not gonna care who's, who's looking at me as I file these papers. I'm just gonna make sure they look great because it honors God for them to look great. I'm not serving them. They may see me, they may not. I'm serving him and I want it to look great. As you do that, he said, here's the crazy thing that'll happen. You'll find yourself in the right inner ring. You'll be in the inner ring of craftsmen who are good at the thing you were built to do and you'll know it and they'll know it. And that's all that matters. You don't get to control where the spotlight swings, but God has built you to serve. And as you do it, there's a deep satisfaction that comes with it. And there's a deep sense of peace when you know he sovereignly guides my story. So I'm liberated to serve and enjoy doing what he built me to do. And then here's the crazy thing about it. When you live that way, bosses tend to notice that. Bosses tend to know when someone's trying to manipulate them, right? It's obnoxious. When someone's always doing eye service and people pleasing, that, that's exhausting, right? You've experienced this. Like who in this room has ever gone home after work and said, you know, man, I was having a hard day. But then you know what? Bob came over and started telling me about how awesome he is and what a great job he did on his last project. And that really changed my perspective on things. I loved it because I wasn't sure how I felt about me. But when he started praising himself, boy, that made me want to be a better human being. No. No one wants to hear you praise yourself. But bosses are looking for someone who does good work. They're looking for someone who's able to serve. Their eyes are scanning the person who's doing the work and they want to elevate someone who's doing it. Uh, I had a friend years ago move here to this town. She wanted to get involved in politics, wasn't quite sure the pathway, but she did what many of you've done. She just loaded up her little four-door car with her handful of belongings and her dreams and drove to Washington, D.C., got an internship job the lowest possible level in a government building. But she was like, but God's given me this job and I'm serving the Lord, not men. And she just wanted to do a great job at what she was doing, working at this little reception desk. And she would do that and do good work. And then one day she looked up and there was a group uh, being led by this guy who looked anxious, nervous, walking around the foyer, didn't know what was going on. And so she just got up and said, excuse me, sir, can I help you with anything? And he was like, a tour guide's supposed to lead us on a tour and I don't know where he is. She wasn't a tour guide. But she was like, um, you know what? Uh, let me, let me help you. Let's solve it. We'll solve it together. Let's do this. And so she just went for it. And afterwards, the guy was like, what's your name? Wrote her name down. And within a few weeks, uh, she had jumped up, I don't know, 10, 20 levels. Within a year or so, she's getting security briefings at some of the highest levels in the government. As a servant, elevated. And God knows that. You don't have to worry about being noticed. You just worry about being good and you'll get noticed. Proverbs says it. Do you see someone who's skilled at their work? They will stand before kings. They will not stand before obscure men. That's what Proverbs says. Don't hurry to get in the spotlight before you're ready for it. You just keep serving. And as you keep serving, God is refining your skills. And when the moment's ready, he'll elevate. You don't have to worry about elevating yourself. You just worry about being good. And some of you, God has you in a job that frankly isn't tapping into all your skills and abilities and you don't love it, but you just keep being good in that space. Why? Because maybe there's some things for you to learn there. I didn't particularly love waiting tables or being a pool chef or a painter or a lawnmower, all the things I did in college. But I look back now and I learned how to serve people when they were nice and when they weren't nice how to construct an area so it looks good. The presentation looks appealing. I learned all these different skills that have directly related to ministry. 
It's fascinating, man. I've had people tell me that. They're like, when I first started ministry, they're like, man, where did you learn ministry? And it was before I went to seminary. And I was like, you know where I learned it? Waiting tables. Because waiting tables, you have to initiate with people. You have to be kind and you have to continue to serve them even when they're not nice back. It's just like ministry. And I realized God was teaching me like karate kid. Like I didn't even know I could do that, right? That he wanted to shape me in that place to serve you. And it's fascinating. Some of you, there are skills you need to pick up and there's no other place to pick them up than where you are right now. God wants to refine you and shave you and work on you. He purposefully put Moses and David out in the field with sheep. What you're learning with those dirty sheep, it's all gonna transfer to how you lead my dirty people. But I need you to pick up the skills out there for the service I've built you with here. So don't despise the humble beginnings. You keep working hard. God's got your story. He's sovereign. You serve. And he'll elevate you at the right time. That's the hope the believer has right? And good work won't be denied. You'll rise to the top. You will. You a good worker, you will not stand before obscure men. You will stand before kings. That's what he said, right? Uh, I listened to an interview. Jimmy Fallon had Louis C.K. on a show once, years ago. And Louis C.K. sat on his couch and had this kind of bizarre moment of honesty for, for an entertainment show. He told Jimmy, who was now leading The Tonight Show, one of the most successful shows on television, he told him, hey, uh, you auditioned for a show way back in the day when you were nobody, and I was on the panel that was going to determine who got to be on this little pilot program. And he said, I remember your audition. And he explained the audition to Jimmy Fallon, who was like, whoa, what? Like, you remember all the silly little jokes I did, the bits? He said, yeah, I remember them because you were so funny and so good looking and so winsome you made me feel insecure. He said, so I torpedoed you. He said, I made sure on that panel you didn't get the job. And he said, it had nothing to do with your skill set. It had everything to do with me being insecure. Which is kind of a bizarre confession. You're like, this is optional. And Jimmy's like, well, like listening to this man do this. And so he's telling him this, confessing, apologizing. But then I'll never forget, he looked at me, he said, but you, with your skill set, he said, you were inevitable. You were inevitable. You're so talented and so gifted and had such a good work ethic. You just kept going and look where you are now. This isn't the path maybe you had thought out in your mind, but you made it. And it's the same with us. He didn't realize he was talking Bible there, but that's how God leads our story. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Bad deal. He landed in Potiphar's house as a victim of... Tragic circumstances outside of his control, but when he landed there, there was a little circle of control. Manage what's been given me at Potiphar's house. And he was faithful with little, and Potiphar made him faithful with much. And it wasn't too long before Joseph was suddenly in charge of the entire estate of this wealthy man who had a high seat in government. That man's wife began to hit on Joseph, then accused him of attempted rape, landed him in prison. Not cool, still a victim of unjust practices by other people, sent to torpedo him. But when he landed in prison, there's a lot outside of my circle of control, but you know what? I can keep the cell nice and tidy. And he was faithful with little things and it didn't take long before the guy who ran the prison elevated him to the lead job in the prison. And in doing that, he met some prisoners who worked for the king. And many of you know the story. When they got out, they told the king about this guy. God had put some gifts in Joseph to interpret dreams that he was able to use. But those gifts got him in the door but it was the work ethic he built in the prison and at Potiphar's house 
that made him the right man for the job Pharaoh was willing to give it. Namely, run all of Egypt. That there were skills in the prison he needed to stand before Pharaoh. There were skills waiting there at Potiphar's house that he needed to go serve Pharaoh. I don't know where you are now, but serve. Work heartily from the soul. Don't fake it. Don't do the minimum or don't suddenly work when the boss shows up. Don't try to itch and claw and scratch to get to the next level. Now, can you switch jobs? Yes. Joseph switched jobs many times. David switched jobs. He was shepherding with a little side gig as the harpist in residence at the palace. But then when he was able to switch to a military career, he switched it. So don't worry about switching your career. What I'm saying is don't onboard all this anxiety about elevating yourself. The Christian works out of purity and sincerity, not anxiety and ambition. Why? Because we trust that God guides our story, that he's leading us where he's meant us to go. And no Potiphar's wife, no slavery selling brothers can stop the children of God. God runs your story. And even when someone does something evil to you, God can elevate you. You never know what he might do. You just serve. And for many of you, God is developing skills in the quiet places that you need for the places out front. He's developing you backstage and thank God for it. I'm so glad that God gave me just a small amount of kids to teach when I started in ministry. Because I said a lot of things, not well. And the blast radius of that only damaged a few unfortunate children. Now they turned out okay, but, uh, but uh, thank God that he has you where he has you and trust him with your life and serve. Not trying to get the attention of some people who may or may not break you, make or break you because they don't have much control anyway. You trust God, you live your story. You take the gifts he put in you, the talents he gave you and pragmatiza, that's what Jesus said, make a profit. Take the skills I gave you and do something good with it for God's glory and the good of the people I made. And when you're faithful with little, I'll make you faithful with much. Don't worry about them. There's no person that can stop you from my purposes. That's chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants with just, justly and fairly, knowing you also have a master in heaven. God says, hey, whoever thinks they run the show, I run their show. And I know you and you know me. So don't worry about them, but you serve. And then he looks at that boss and saying, you make sure you issue forth justice and fairness. Because if you don't, you answer to me. And here God elevates those who serve and those who lead onto the same playing field. Everybody's equal before the eyes of God. And everybody is meant to use their gifts for his glory and the good of others. And if you don't do that, if you use it for exploitation, God will deal with you. And you let God deal with them. But you decide to serve. And you let the Lord elevate you in due time. Now, as soon as I say that, I know for many of us, we go, well, Ben, I haven't lived up to that. I've fallen short of that. I've lived lives of anxiety. I've, I've lived lives of ambition. I've been scratching clawing so hard to get someone to notice me because I'm afraid I won't get noticed. I've lacked faith. That's what that is. That's a lack of faith. That's all right. All of us are a mess in here. But when you come to God acknowledging that you're a mess, that's when grace comes rushing in. I had a conversation with one of my kids yesterday. It was amazing. She'd done something wrong. So I took away a privilege. She went to bed kind of frustrated about it. Woke up the next morning and I said, hey, let's talk for a little bit. And she came back and she was like, you know what? I had a tough night. 
She said, but I read the Bible and I prayed and I feel good about it. I was like, okay. It's like, talk me through that. And she said, I deserved it. She said, I did something you told me not to do. And so you took away my stuff and I deserved it. She said, I read Jonah. I'm like, okay. She's like, God told someone, Jonah, to do something. He didn't do it. He ran off. I was like, what'd God do? And he's like, well, he threw a storm at him. Messed up his life. It's not working for him. I said, then what did God do next? And she said, he had grace. He saved him. I said, yeah, that fish was, was grace. Coming to rescue him from the depths and pull him back. I said, but did you notice where the fish set him back down? On the road to Nineveh. <laughs> So grace will forgive you for making a mess, but then it wants to put you right back on the path where God has you go. And I just love that, that I didn't have to preach it at all. She was like, yeah, no, that's how it works. I did wrong. I deserve punishment. Here comes grace. Hallelujah. I'm like, okay, they're doing something right at the school. Um, or maybe Don is doing something right. I'm just there to pick illustrations. Hey, you may have wandered a long way off. You might have been here and you throw your Bible in the backseat of your car. God lands in the closet till next Sunday. He has no bearing on the way you handle your career because your version of God is really small. And you think your boss is bigger than him. You think the capital is bigger than him. You think the world's bigger than him. And I hope today you're seeing that is not the case at all. You're wrong. But God delights in chasing after and rescuing wrong people. Because he's not just the sovereign over all. He's the savior of all who will come to him with faith. Jesus Christ came with all that power and authority and he used it to serve us. He didn't worry about elevating himself. He said, I'm coming as a servant under you. I'm gonna serve you. I'm gonna take what God gave me this body, this life, and I'm going to lay it down willingly like a lamb to a slaughter. Because I know when this body, like a seed in the dirt falls, a harvest will rise. When I give my perfect life for you, you have the possibility now of experiencing grace, forgiveness, redemption, being born again, that Jesus came to serve us. Was he treated unjustly? Heck yes, he was murdered. But God raised him from the dead. God elevated him. God gave him a name above every other name and seated him on high. And that's the king we follow. We come to him and say, hey, maybe I went the wrong way, but if you're forgiving people, I wanna trust you. I wanna trust that you're the savior of my soul and the sovereign over my story. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.